In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And you will tell by that pause that I do not have my normal trusted co-host with me tonight. Nathan is on vacation. um, And so tonight will be a very different format for the show um, that I hope you like. So rather than having one co-host for the whole episode, I'll be having three individual conversations, each with a co-host selected specifically um, to service that conversation best. So we will start off with a conversation with my twin brother, Taylor, about uh, UBI. And then we will discuss um, the recent ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline uh, with my, with a friend of mine, Connor, who is a software developer. And finally, um, my wife, Bree, will be making her inaugural appearance on the show. My wife is a uh, journalist, and she will be on talking about uh, media and media, like common perception of the media, and we'll talk about um, some of the recent rhetorical attacks on the media that have been that have been uh, kind of with us since the Trump administration on really both sides, both sides of the aisle. Um, and as always, if you like the show and you want to support us, um, it would be awesome if you could head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the perspectrum and drop us a couple of bucks. I would really appreciate it. So as usual, we will start off by discussing the COVID numbers. So worldwide, a total of 162 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 156 million last week, which is about 6 million new cases in one week or nearly 3.8% increase in total cases. Um, So far, 3.36 million people have died from COVID worldwide, which is up from 3.25 million people last week, which is, again, about a 3.4% increase in total deaths, or about 110,000 new deaths this week. So far, 18 doses have been administered worldwide for every 100 people, which is up from 16 doses per 100 people last week. So, you know, that's like two doses per 100 people increased week over week, which is about the same increase we've been seeing for the last several weeks. In the U.S., 33.6 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 33.3 million people last week, which is only a 0.9% increase in total cases, which is you know, very low as far as our increases go. It's one of the lowest we've seen since the start of the pandemic, but that's still about 300,000 new cases in one week. Um, So far, we've reached 599,000 deaths, which is up from 593,000 last week, which is, you know, about a 1% increase. Again, you know, lower than we've seen through most of the pandemic, but still about 860 new deaths per day. At this point in the U.S., we've administered at least one dose of the vaccine to 46% of the population, 
which is up from 45% last week. So just one percentage point increase week over week, which is about the same thing we saw the week before, which is very, very low. As a reminder, when we were first starting to really roll out vaccines, we were seeing 4% of the population vac vaccinated with the first dose about each week, which is about what we saw we're seeing this week with fully vaccinated people. So 36% of the U.S. is now fully vaccinated, which is up from 32% last week. So again, we're seeing that, you know, four percentage points increase, which is great to see. But what does this indicate? You know, when, when, one, when only 1% more of the population has gotten the first dose, but 4% more of the population has gotten their second dose, that indicates that vaccine hesitancy is totally screwing the pooch on this one. Okay, so for the first segment on this super unconventional um, episode of The Perspectrum, I've got my first of three co-hosts. Um, so today uh, with me, I've got my twin brother, Taylor. He is an actor, musician, um, an all-around great guy. And, uh, <laughs> and longtime thinker about the topics uh, and talker about the topics that we, we discuss on this show. So welcome, Taylor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. And that, that is exactly, yeah. I didn't, I, have you seen my resume? Because that's exactly what it says. Taylor Bloom, actor, musician, and all around great guy. <laughs> <laughs> really? No. I think I've heard you introduce yourself as that, potentially, or maybe, maybe someone else. As I that. might have said something along those lines. Uh, when Scout and yeah. I were on a few months ago. Yeah, I yeah. think, yes, you did. I think you did. Yeah. Cause that's that's how I, when yeah. I'm on this show, that's who I am. That's who you are. Um, <laughs> All around great yeah, guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the topic we are breaking down today is we're doing um, another segment on UBI. So if you, if you um, haven't uh, heard our previous episode where we discuss UBI, uh, that's back at uh, the middle of March. Um, so you can go back and listen. Nathan and I break down some common arguments against UBI. Uh, we talk a little bit about funding and like the economic impact. But today we're mostly focused in on um, some other aspects of UBI. So kind of the uh, non economic potentially some of those benefits and mm -hmm. uh and and some of the the real value that it can provide to us as a nation mm. uh beyond just you know some extra money in your pocket and beyond thinking about the deficit yeah i specifically want to come at it from the angle of you know here's all of these uh here's all these points that prove that it is uh, financially viable and mm -hmm. here's why that doesn't matter. <laughs> like it doesn't <laughs> matter anyway. Here's all these other reasons that it's good. Um, yeah, I think I think that's like the perfect approach because ultimately, I think the case we're building around UBI, which is be I think becoming more and more convincing. But I think the case we're ultimately building is it is gr it is a good idea. Mm -hmm. The people that argue against it end up not having good arguments and so when they fail to abandon those arguments we have to ignore them <laughs> right because yeah. they're not going to abandon like the types of arguments that we're going to talk about yeah it's true it's true it is an idea that um i think it's good to talk about a lot because yeah. while it is it's it's somewhat radical on its face 
um, once the inner workings are exposed a little bit, it is a lot more <laughs> just like grounded and realistic and honestly mm -hmm. like present in a lot of places in the world already. Yes. Um, it's yeah. just so alien, like until, um, Andrew Yang was a presidential candidate. I had never even heard of, heard the term UBI and, yeah. you know, shout out to him for bringing it into the sort of like general mindset of political, you know, politically minded people. Um, yeah. but I, yeah, it's just one of those things that like, it, the more people know about it, I feel like, uh, it, it will be more widely accepted because it's really not all that out there as a concept. Yeah. You're totally right. It's kind of amazing, actually. I, I had a really interesting experience my last year in college. I went and spent a couple of days uh, as part of my philosophy and policy and law program. I spent a couple of days at UNC with a bunch of other people from similar programs from around the world. So we had people from the UK, Australia. And the topic that we the symposium was addressing was inequality. Big mm. topic. Had a bunch of papers. Like We read a ton to prepare for these conversations and we spent two days discussing inequality and essentially the conclusion that we reached totally organically was that ubi or something like it a strong social safety net that basically provides a floor is the best and only great solution to like mm -hmm. inequality that we have line of sight to to achieve yeah yeah i think that's that makes total sense to me and i think there are certain things in place that are designed to 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 perform a similar like have a similar result that UBI would yeah. like, but they're know, worse. Unemployment insurance or you know um, SNAP benefits. Yep. Uh, but the problem with all those things is the the like safeguards that have been put in place to make sure that people don't quote unquote take advantage of them are the yeah. things that make them ineffective. Yeah. So something like UBI, what makes it so wonderfully effective? in its purest form is that it is no questions asked. It doesn't, mm -hmm. if you have a pulse, here's your money every month, you know? <laughs> and like that, yeah. it, the simplicity of that is what helps it to be streamlined, but also helps it like keeps it from becoming hampered down with these like qualifications and, you know, mm. stuff like that. But we can get into that, you know? Yeah. So before we get too deep, for anybody that is new to this concept, UBI stands for Universal Basic Income. It is, as its name implies, a minimum amount of money provided to every single adult is usually the formulation every month, and it is universal. There are no qualifications. As Taylor said, if you have a pulse, here's your money. Um, and so that's like the topic, the, the, the concept that we're talking about right now. Yeah, and um, it's, a, it's a concept that has been around for... Um, a long time longer than I realized like I said I only became mm -hmm. aware of it last year um, but it's been a part of uh, legislation in the United States um, since at least like the 1960s um, mm. and I'll talk a little bit about that um, but and then outside the United States um, it's it is currently uh, you know in various forms and iterations in place in a number of uh, countries around the, the globe uh, and you know pretty effective yeah. So, um, the, 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 my notes on, on this whole conversation are drawn pretty heavily from a book called Utopia for Realists by a guy named Rutger Bregman. And, uh, there's a quote in his whole, um, section on UBI that, um, is exquisite to me. It is so <laughs> beautiful because on its face, it sounds really dumb. Uh, and it's, 
And it's one of those things that if you think about it for an extra second, it really is just that simple. It's a quote from an economist named Charles Kenny uh, from Bloomberg Business Week in 2013. And he says, the big reason poor people are poor is because they don't have enough money. And it shouldn't come as a huge surprise that giving them money is a great way to reduce that problem. Just think about that for a second. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) What a stupid thing to say. What a stupid thing to sit so here and pickle. realize how dumb, like, like, duh, yeah. you know, you think about it. I it's, think it's, yeah, go ahead. The amazing thing about that is how it lays bare how effectively we've been fucking duped yeah. by Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and 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 so like true. Reagan economics, like all that mm-hmm. stuff is literally them trying to say, Poorness is not about money. It's about morality. Yes. It's about your worth as a person. Exactly. You know? And and once you once you accept that, once you bite that bullet, you are de- headed down a terrible yeah. slope of of increasingly complicated and increasingly unworkable policies. But giving money to people without money solves them not having money really does the trick man and michael and i are here to tell you today you know it's been (laughs) somewhere on the order of 40 years and baby it ain't trickling down so let's (laughs) let's call the experiment quits yeah if if economics is gravity we've defied the laws of physics because it's all fucking (laughs) trickling up (laughs) yeah so i just want to the first thing i want to talk about uh as regards ubi is just a little example of uh, a way that it's worked um, so, uh, in this book, the author gives a few examples and I've just selected some of them uh, to share. And one is from an experiment that was done in London, England, uh, during 2009, or I think, I think 2008, 2009, um, where there's a London based, uh, aid organization that's called Broadway. I give my regards to them. Um, <laughs> and, um, they, had an idea to try out UBI essentially on some of the uh, individuals that they work with. Um, and so they, they designed a whole sort of uh, study and were, and they added up sort of the, the uh, expense of supporting uh, 13 homeless men um, every year who had been living on the streets, some of them for 40 plus years, just in and around the streets of London. Um, and they decided what they would do is sort of figure out how much it cost to support them between things like, you know, um, their reliance on soup kitchens and homeless shelters and when they had, uh, you know, brushes with the law, um, things like that. So they added up the expense of, you know, the, the financial burden that those 13 individuals had on, the, on, the, on the, the city of London. And then what they did was they gave them each uh, 3,000 pounds to do whatever they want, basically. They were just like, here's three grand. Um, pretty novel idea. I mean, t- to most people to think about, you know, like walking up to a homeless person and giving them like a 20 is kind of, that would be like an extremely generous, like mm-hmm. if you if you were like with your group of friends and you like walked over to, a, to a, a gentleman who was sitting on the sidewalk and handed him 20 bucks, your friends would have a lot of different reactions. Let's just put it that way, I, I would imagine. Yeah. So yeah. this organization handed out 3,000 pounds cash to each of these individuals and then checked back in with them after a year, after 18 months. And hmm. 18 months later, seven out of 13 of them were no longer homeless and two more were about to move into apartments. So that's nine out of 13 of these individuals uh, 
who, after 18 months, given just cash, were able to put an end uh, to their homelessness, some of whom, as I repeat, had been homeless on the streets you know, of London for 40-plus years. That's remarkable. Yeah. A lifetime spent yeah. on the streets. Absolutely. And the real kicker is, is the number that they worked up, that, that they calculated, was that these 13 uh, individuals cost the city of London six hundred and fifty thousand dollars or four hundred thousand pounds a year and then for fifty thousand pounds a which year was the, yeah fifty thousand pounds yeah exactly which which essentially amounts to the sort of like quote-unquote stipend that these men were given that solved their uh, the homelessness problem for nine out of 13 of them so that's that's hmm. just a little quick little calculation that's uh, a 60 that's homelessness reduced by 69 percent for one thirteenth the cost that the city was bearing before they tried this experiment. Now, obviously, mm. this is a tiny microcosm of what something like a nationwide yeah. UBI would be, mm-hmm. but it does really show. The, yeah, go ahead, Miguel. Applied applied to the group that would benefit from it the most. You take a segment of the population that is in most exactly. need and is most likely to benefit up from it, but that the so the. The effects are twofold. One, it worked. And two, it made economic sense. A, a tremendous amount of economic sense. And you would, you would assume that extrapolated into a larger population um, across a lot of different backgrounds and economic you know, brackets and stuff, the uh, cost would go up. So I bet you wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to get that level of effectiveness for one-thirteenth the cost you were spending before. But... Yeah. Um, it does go to show that, you know, for at least a certain segment of the population, it can be a highly financially beneficial, like even literally if, even if a government program was, yeah, was literally just for homeless people. UBI just yeah. for homeless people would be an amazing improvement in, in, in all of their lives and also mm. uh, a financially viable move for uh, city, state, local and federal governments to make, you know. Um, yeah. So it's just a good example, you know, to talk about. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people, when uh, a lot of the counter arguments, you, as you guys have mentioned, um, to UBI, like sort of the the knee jerk reaction that I think a lot of people will have, are, are a couple of worries. A that if you pay people to do nothing, then they'll continue to do nothing. You know, they'll stop mm-hmm. working. Uh, but there's another example of UBI, another experiment that was done that lasted four years uh, in uh, I don't know how to pronounce it because it's French. I think it's Dauphin, Canada. Um, which is a small town. I think it's north of Winnipeg. Um, and about a thousand families were granted a modest UBI. I think it came to about $19,000 for a family of four. Uh, and mm. this was over the course of four years. And after that four years time, um, people didn't stop working. The total work hours for men dropped by only 1% and for women dropped by only 3%. And it's like, okay, well they did drop, but consider this hospitalizations in that town decreased by 8.5%. That is mm. remarkable. The healthcare mm. costs incurred by that 8.5% far outweigh the the like loss in work time from the from from the experiment. It's it's remarkable. So people don't stop working. You know, they spend time doing yeah. other things and <laughs> it's clear that some of those things include tending to their health, you know? Taking time yeah. off, like relaxing, you know, getting, being able to go for a jog or like shop for the right groceries, you know, and not have to worry about, uh, you know, missing time from work and not have to worry about breaking the bank, buying 
groceries that are healthy, you know? And, and that's a huge thing actually. So like, so a one to 3% reduction in work hours is not an an economic crisis of lack of labor, Mm -hmm. right? Like that reduction, even if you just had that one data point, you could, you could quickly hypothesize and you would likely be right that that is related to people working slightly less, which who doesn't want that and, and not leaving the workforce. And one thing that multiple studies of UBI have found, multiple studies of UBI have found small variations in working hours. There's the, the evidence is a little spotty because it kind of falls on both sides of the spectrum. In some cases, people actually work, end up working more because they actually are able to go and get jobs that they couldn't get before because they, they, it improves their economic opportunity, improves their career paths. They're getting better wages, but also able to get jobs that they literally couldn't get at all. Um, in cases where studies have found that, that labor hours have gone slightly down, first of all, they've all been only slight. It's only been slight reductions, which is key. But in those cases, they've also found that those activities don't go to you know, people doing nothing. They go towards really value-added activities. Mm-hmm. They go towards things like childcare, like yes. having time to take care of your kids. They go towards education, investing in like future growth opportunities. Yep. So, so actually this reduction in labor looks like it is a, it is actually even on an economic, from an economic perspective has, has a positive uh, it is a positive impact. Absolutely. And there is, there is hard evidence to support the claims you're making, Mike. Um, as I mentioned, the U.S. Um, came very close to establishing uh, federal legislation around UBI in the 60s and 70s. Um, and as a part of uh, this legislation, there was a study done by the U.S. government um, where they established some like, again, some like experimental UBI uh, programs in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Iowa, North Carolina, Indiana, Washington, and Colorado. This was in 1964. Mm-hmm. And at the end of this experiment, um, they discovered that the, the you know, small declines in paid work, as again, we, we saw in the example uh, where the one and 3% with men and women working hours respectively, um, those were attributed largely to, as you say, um, doing other productive uh, labor. So, for example, in New Jersey, as a result of this experiment, 30%, 30%, the increase in high school graduations rose 30% during mm. that experiment. That just means that, I mean, if you say something like the, the, the men in the labor workforce, you can be referring to high school students when you yeah, say that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, those are people who shouldn't necessarily be working families. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So so uh, it just again, it's it sort of goes to the argument that. um, And I'll get to this a little bit later. The mistake, I think, that is made in considerations of something like UBI is in um, thinking about it solely in terms of the bottom line. How much is this going to cost? You know, is this are we going to be able to who's going to pay for it? And yeah. those are questions that need to be answered, but mm-hmm. I think uh, at least uh, a consideration that is as is at least as important is beyond uh, uh, the bottom line of the cost of the thing, um, and beyond the the bottom line of like how be- financially beneficial it would be for someone, but how that it's kind of like watering a plant. 
how the the water like runs down into the roots and allows the plant to grow uh, more, you know, fruitfully. It, it, mm-hmm. it, it's the, the benefits kind of like bleed into the rest of a person's life, bleed in a good way, of course. But like you see people spending more time with their family. You see people, a, a, an 8.5% reduction in hospitalizations. You see people literally are healthier. They graduate yeah. high school, you know, more like with, with greater success. It is remarkable. Yeah. It's remarkable. Another... Another like huge economic benefit, which in some of my reading, I didn't think about this, but this was called out in, in some of the reading I was doing. We have a large segment of the population which in, engages in productive work that is not gainful. Productive work for which they are not paid. People that contribute critical roles to society that don't get paid. And UBI would be a way to enable to, to provide them some economic benefits, some economic compensation for that non-payment. Hmm. The, one of the biggest groups here is uh, is stay-at-home mothers and fathers, hmm. caregivers of the elderly, like caregivers of of their parents, like people that spend a significant portion of their time volunteering. These are all groups that, like, we l- rely on, especially especially someone like a caregiver for children. This is a person that, as we see, like, two-parent households with, you know, both parents going to work and the literal crisis of childcare, we see the incredible value of at-home care and mm. the fact that we have been free-riding on that care since the beginning of time. And it's high time that we start at least providing some level of compensation for these people. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's not... As I mentioned before, and I want to just go into a little bit more specifics about it, it's not um, a completely radical idea because because you mm-hmm. can look back at, at you know the history of legislation in the United States and see that we have uh, looked at UBI before, and the reasons it fell apart are are like very silly um, bipartisan reasons. So as mm-hmm. I mentioned in 1964, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson declared a war on poverty. And the federal government established UBI-like experiments in those states that I mentioned before. And um, based on the results of those studies in 1968, uh, President Nixon proposed what would become uh, the Family Assistance Plan, which is a bill that basically provided for a basic, uh, a modest basic income for families. And according to one study, about 80% of Americans favored the bill, um, which is, you know, that's obviously not a... um, (laughs) Not something that we see a lot these days is yeah, 80% of people amazing. favoring something. Holy crap. Um, yeah. So after two years, it passed the House of Representatives, and then it died in the Senate because Democrats didn't feel it was progressive enough. Now, where have we seen that mm. happening before? Oh, good God. <laughs> yeah. Fuck me. <laughs> Isn't that just like it makes you just hurt so me. bad? <laughs> yeah. It just reminds me of a year ago when, uh, when you know the Congress was trying to pass uh, the HEROES Act. And mm-hmm. the, it kept going back and forth and back and forth. And, um, you know, for, for some of us, that, like that was, we, we were watching with bated breath. And, and a lot of what ended up happening was it's, it's not, doesn't go far enough, so we're not signing it. So it's just an interesting thing to, uh, to bear in mind. Um, and then after that, it was actually revised and voted on again in 1971. Uh, and the same bill died in the, in, the, in the House again, or died in the Senate. Yeah, so it was just... Uh, but it's something that we've considered as a nation before, and it's yeah. something that at, at, at one point at least, 80% of Americans supported. And I think yeah. if, if the, the subject is presented 
to the vast majority of Americans. Um, as Andrew Yang sort of took up that, that torch last year, um, mm-hmm. I think we, we'd probably see a lot of support for it again, you know? Yeah. But who knows? It's a, I find these studies in U.S. cities from the 70s really interesting because mm-hmm. it's another just great counterargument to the perspective that, yeah, UBI might work, you know, in Europe, but not in America. We're just different. We're just different people. But it does work in America. It does. It really does. And and the the biggest takeaway from the studies that I saw in in the seventies was was the impact it had on education and and student mm-hmm. success um, in education. That that thirty percent increase in graduations in New Jersey just kind of thirty percent is a huge margin. Um, yeah. And then there are some other studies that I'll just quickly rattle off here that are uh, from other nations around the world. Uh, in Namibia, uh, a UBI program was put in place and malnutrition dropped from 42% to 10%. Uh, truancy, which I had to look up, uh, refers to unexplained absence from school, <laughs> dropped from 40% <laughs> to almost zero, and crime dropped oh by gosh. 42%. Now, obviously, Namibia is a very different place to pretty much any region of the United States, but you see these mm-hmm. patterns emerging in all of these different examples. And, and everything seems like it can be traced back to people have... A little bit more money, they have a little bit more cushion, they have a little bit more time to do the things that they really wish to do, to take care of the kids. Um, and, and young children, high school-aged children, middle school-aged children don't have to worry about um, contributing to the family kitty yet, and they can mm-hmm. continue to focus on attending school. Um, yeah. I think I think there's also something you mentioned earlier. Is like a common counter-argument is people don't want to pay people not to work. When you said that, I, 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 for the first time, thought of the other side of that coin, which I think is way, way, way more insidious. And this is the first time I thought about it in these terms. What we have right now is people not being paid to work. Like, they, they're, they're, they're working and not being paid well, which yeah. means that work is no longer a solution to their economic problems. Mm. which means the main way that they're told that they should interact with society in order to advance doesn't work for them because mm. their pay is too low, which means that they, like any rational animal, would then turn to other means to try to satisfy their needs, which right. means, of course, crime would go up. Mm-hmm. Of course, you would you would take your time and not invest it in the future, not invest it in school, but invest it right now in trying to put food on your table. You know, exactly. like the like when you when you pay someone poorly to work, it's way worse than paying someone not to work. It's, it's so true, so true, and it's it's a it's really just heartbreaking that that's the situation in in the U.S. and in a lot of uh, countries like the U.S. around the world. Um, where I, my perspective on the function of government has shifted in the last yeah. few years. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people probably shared the perspective that I used to have, which was seeing the, func- the function of the federal and state governments as ways of uh, protecting your property, protecting your well-being, maintaining things like roads um, and bridges, and generally keeping everything sort of running smoothly, keeping you mm-hmm. limping along. And like, if something in goes wrong in your life. In a way. Yes, yes. And, and in terms of the, the, you know, parts of the social safety net that exist now, 
you know, it's like if something goes horribly wrong in your life, there's, there should be some way that we can help you out. Mm-hmm. But my perspective has shifted. Um, and it's just because of the polarity of things. It's, mm. it's because of how much wealth there is in this nation and how few people have most of it. Mm-hmm. It just seems so out of whack that there should still be so much strife and income insecurity and food insecurity. It's just, it's just wildly yeah. unacceptable to me that that could be yeah. the case. And it, so it seems to me like as one of the wealthiest nations on planet Earth, we should figure out a way. Like the government's new position in my mind is to make everybody's life as good as possible while doing like while limiting everyone's freedom as little as possible yeah. and it seems like a pretty small cost of freedom to uh to redistribute uh some cash in in that way um yeah the fact especially that jeff bezos could single-handedly fund the ubi exactly exactly and i've got i've got one last little um sort of statistical some numbers to throw out uh, that really drive this point home, I think. <clears throat> so according to a co- an economist named Matt Brunig, eradicating poverty in the U.S., this was in 2013, uh, so it's a little old, but uh, eradicating poverty in the U.S. would cost $175 billion. That's a lot of money. Hmm. I mean, that's a huge mountain of money. Uh, it is about 1% of the GDP, and it's approximately a quarter of the U.S. military budget. Hmm. A Harvard study estimated that wars in Afghanistan and Iraq cost somewhere on the order of four to six trillion dollars. So the war on poverty is a lot more cost effective than either of those engagements. Hmm. Now, I'm not making any comments beyond that on the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq because I don't know enough about it. But I will say it seems like money more well spent on making sure that uh, every American family has access to healthy food, and has the option to, um, you know, spend as much time as they want taking care of their children and uh, not feeling insecure in their income and being able to keep everyone healthy and happy. It seems like a real small price to pay to me. And now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Taylor, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, I mean, Michael, I'm, me and Nathan do it every week, but <laughs> you're doing. Why it this do week. I listen to Tips for Good every week? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you, it's um, it's because uh, I'll take you to the candy shop. <laughs> I'll let you lick the lollipop. <laughs> Go ahead, girl. Don't you stop? <clears throat> Keep going till you hit the spot. Whoa! Yeah, it's the spot. Like the tip, just the tip for good. It's the spot. <laughs> Just the tip for good, yeah. We hit and it also, every week. also because, yeah, you want to make the world a better place, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. You want to you hit the spot by making the world a better place. Hitting the spot does make the world slightly brighter. Does. That's a really good point. At least one or two people at a time. Uh, <laughs> uh, or, I mean, that's scalable. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you can, you can include as many people as you Come like. Come on, yeah. Yeah. So, so what is the tip, tip for good this week, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> so this week, our tip for good is super timely. In fact, you got to listen to this episode right away. Uh, <laughs> because 
it has to do with taxes. And so normally taxes, the, your tax return is due or your tax bill. Um, you're required to file your taxes normally on April 15th. This year, because there was a fucking pandemic, um, it's May 17th is National Tax Day. Mm. Um, and so the tip for good this week is to tell you that if you can't pay your tax bill for whatever reason, there are things you can do so that you don't get totally screwed over by the IRS. So um, according to uh, a tax expert, Nina Olson, who's the executive director of the Center for Taxpayer Rights, her advice is ignore your instincts because your instincts are going to be to put your head in the sand, pretend nothing's wrong, and do nothing. All right, yes. Hoping that the problem will just go away. That she says tracks. that's the worst possible thing. Yeah, that's exactly what I would do. I'd be like, oh, man, low on money? Better not look at my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> just delete the Chase app real quick Yeah, here. exactly. Oh, man, not even – there's no money anymore. Yeah. Um, and so, so like, if, if you just ignore the problem, if you owe taxes and you ignore the problem, the IRS will – not do anything to help you. They will garnish your wages or your paycheck. They'll levy, um, you know, your bill against your bank account. You will get royally screwed. But all you have to do to try to make, to try to fix the situation is go to irs.gov, click, click the link that says make a payment, and they've got a bunch of options for different ways um, for you to pay your bill. You can pay it over time. Um, and you can also... Mm-hmm call the IRS at uh, 800-829-10040. And they do have a long queue. Like, as with all government agencies, when you give them a call, it takes a while to get through. But Mm -hmm. they they can provide you with help. And I've I've called the IRS not for my personal taxes, but when I was a bookkeeper, um, I called the IRS because I missed a tax deadline um, that I didn't know existed. Like a bad bookkeeper. Exactly. I felt terrible. They were super, they were super helpful. (laughs) They were, they were super helpful. They, they provided me with, um, great guidance. They knew exactly what they were talking about. They followed up later on. Like it was actually an amazing experience. So don't be intimidated, call the big guy or go online. Um, and don't get screwed over just because you're low on cash during tax month. That's interesting. They put it behind the make a payment button though. It's like, yeah, The last thing you'd fucking want to do if you didn't know about this already. <laughs> You're not just going to stumble on this as an option. You know? Exactly. And that's why it's a tip for good. That's right. So for our next segment, we have another co-host uh, in our very unconventional uh, Perspectrum podcast format this week. Um, we've got Connor Haynes on the podcast here. Connor uh, is a multifaceted human being. It's uh, Connor and I work together uh, at you know one of the largest retailers in the United States as strategists. And Connor went off and became a master in philosophy. Um, and then now he is a software developer for Capital One, where we both work now, uh, <laughs> but not not together. Um, so welcome yeah, to the show. Yeah, thanks for the welcome. Yeah. I am. I'm happy to be here. I'm an expert at nothing. <laughs> but hopefully we can have some fun talking about uh, about ransomware. Yeah, 
Yeah, we are not experts in anything here at the Perspectrum. We are, we are, we are thoughtful laymen spreading our voices. <laughs> Hopefully, that uh, is is a helpful thing. Yeah. So as Connor kind of teased, our conversation today, as um, connected to some stories in the news, is about ransomware. So kind of talking about. So first, kind of talking about like what it is, why we should care about it because i don't know about you connor i don't get super jazzed over cybersecurity. uh it's not like my major thing that i love <laughs> i i think cybersecurity is well i mean i think it's a lot more dry and detailed in practice than it is in in the movies or you know i, I think when i first got into <laughs> developing i thought like oh man you know i get to the computer now and you're like hack back and forth with some guy in russia <laughs> trying to get into the system and you know as it turns out no, it's not. It does, yeah, no, it's 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 not what keeps me up. You know, mm. keeps me awake late into the wee hours yeah. of the morning, fascinated. You mean what protects our computer systems is not a bunch of good guy hackers on the inside, <laughs> staying up all night to monitor. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it might be, but I I, I was thinking. I mean, I, I I was thinking about the way in which hacking is portrayed in media, mm. um, and if you go on YouTube or something, you can see montages of of people hacking back and forth in, in movies where you have like the, the trope of like the, the bad guy hacker and the, the good guy defense um, or in like spy movies or whatever, there's always like the sidekick to the secret agent who can just hack into any system. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, it makes for good television. I mean, the way computers actually work probably doesn't make for good television, mm. but um, I don't, but I also think it's kind of a, a lot. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a funny trope because, what makes computers so impressive is how fast they can compute things and yeah. act. I mean, and automate things. I mean, that's what we do with computers. We automate activities. Mm. And so it'd be really strange if the way that hacking actually worked was people typing in real time at a computer. I mean, it's how slow that would be. That would be it, so it's dumb. contrary to everything about how uh, we actually leverage mm. computers. That's so funny. That's such a funny observation. That's true. Because like when you hack something, as we're going to talk about, you spend time making the software ahead of time. Like, it's not like you're like writing it on the fly. You're just that good. You're like <laughs> writing flawless software on the fly to get, get past these systems. Yes, I, I wish, I think any, you know, any developer will tell you there's a lot more time spent debugging code and figuring out where mm. you wrote things incorrectly the first time or the second time or the 10th time than there ever yeah. is. I mean, the hope that you could, I mean, if you think about like, the very fact that programming is a formal language. So the syntax has to be exact. You can't make yeah. typos when you code. The, the yeah. code won't execute or function the way you expect it to. Um, so the thought that you could do it in real time, you'd, you'd have to have 100% typing accuracy. It's, <laughs> it, it's it'd be not, very impressive, but yeah. it's, it's not realistic. Well, that's and that's the thing about the trope is that that is what the trope is meant to imply. It's not actually about the computer. It's not about the software it's not about the activity it's about the individual and portraying them as like a genius you know it's part of the montage scene at the beginning where you know we're establishing his credentials as being a 100 accurate typer um mm. but i will say when i use the terminal i do turn it on dark mode with green text to oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um so the reason we're talking about this is because ransomware as a type of malware is an increasingly uh, present and risky component of like our internet connectedness. The most recent example of like a really high profile impact of this 
was a couple of days ago when um, a ransomware uh, from a group called Darkside uh, was used to attack the Colonial Pipeline, which provides 45% of the fuel to the East Coast. Um, and this is one of the largest known hacks on US energy infrastructure ever. And um, the thing is, these attacks, similar types of attacks to the Colonial Access Pipeline, leveraging ransomware as a tool are becoming more and more common. And the impacts are huge. So, you know, I don't know if you experienced this, Connor. Um, you know, there were lines around, uh, like, around the block for people getting gas because the shutdown of this pipeline that resulted from this uh, this malware attack, this ransomware attack, um, led to gas shortages throughout the the southeast, um, spikes in prices. Um, there was a state of emergency declared across a bunch of states. Atlanta, in Atlanta, one in five gas stations ran out of gas on Tuesday. Um, and it's all because this ransomware was loaded um, into the colonial or the colonial pipeline network and uh, and basically their data was held for ransom. Yeah, and I guess like you know one thing that's striking to me or, or maybe it's kind of a it's it's a question somewhat rhetorical maybe, but why does a ransomware attack matter for a physical pipeline? Yeah. I mean this, this is a physical infrastructure. this is moving, uh, real refined fuel products across the, the east coast of the United States. Doesn't it seem in, in some sense strange that mm. a software attack would disable physical infrastructure yeah. in this way? Yeah. Yeah. And Christopher Krebs, the former head of the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security, referred to this as an obsession with connecting things to the internet. He was talking about like, we just want everything to be connected, which like has great benefits for convenience, but especially in our energy infrastructure where like these systems were not designed to be connected for connectivity. They were designed for the most part, like decades ago before this was a, like before, you know, internet connectivity, much less cybersecurity was on the top of everyone's minds, but now it's integral to the actual functioning and like movement of these of these systems. Yeah, and it, it makes sense. I think from some perspective, I mean, I can imagine the way in which software would be used to control the the flow of of oil. It's probably much more efficient to allocate mm. um, what oil goes where through some sort of software program than it is manually. Um, I would imagine that. I mean, it, it's probably like a computer controlling anything else. It's it's it. Even a pipeline is as much, I mean, is, is it too aggressive to say it's as much software as it is physical infrastructure? I mean, maybe that sounds like it's too much, but what an attack like this shows is that the, the software is not a auxiliary component of yeah. even this like, you know, very traditional way of, of supplying energy to people. I mean, this is, this is old school. We've had pipelines for a long time now <laughs> and, uh, um, and probably 60 years ago, software was sort of auxiliary to the running of a, of mm -hmm. a refined fuel products pipeline. Now it's not, now it's integral. Mm. Um, and, yeah, and, it, and I don't and, know, did, oh, go ahead. And importantly to the network itself is like, like once the, 
uh, organization that runs the Colonial Pipeline realized that ransomware had been, you know, loaded into their network, they shut down. The first step in in like addressing these kinds of attacks is to shut down the system itself, so you can kind of quarantine these uh, the the malware. And so like, it wasn't necessarily that like the ransomware shut down gas, but in order to contain it, the pipeline was shut down. Mm. Interesting, um, definitely. Yeah, and did you see that um, that Colonial paid the ransom demand? Yes. Yeah, which doesn't surprise me, right? Like, we're talking about like the software here encrypts your data, and you're not getting you're not getting that back unless you rebuild your infrastructure or unless you pay the ransom. Yeah, well, this is. <laughs> I thought this was uh, a great little snippet I got out of a Bloomberg article. Uh, so the Bloomberg article is, is the title is Colonial Pipeline paid hackers nearly five million in ransom, mm. and then there's this nice little gem hidden in the the middle of the article that says that the uh, decrypting tool that the uh, that the hackers gave them to restore their systems was so slow that the company is continuing to use its own backups to restore the system. <laughs> oh my god, that's hilarious! That's actually um, really funny. Which, which, like, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I was, was going to say, like, it, it, I have a question for you, which is like, what the fuck is ransomware? <laughs> <laughs> well, and and okay, I think that's a perfect transition because, um, because that's a great question, right? Like, what the fuck is ransomware, and like, who's doing this, and why? You know, like, so so let's let's try to let's start off by trying to answer that. So. Ransomware is a type of malware, like any kind of virus that you might get on your computer uh, or your network. Um, so specifically ransomware hijacks an organization's network and or data um, and locks out the organization from accessing it by encrypting, um, encrypting access and, and basically extorts whatever the organization is for the ability to then decrypt that information and then regain access to their systems. Um, and like other kinds of malware, there are lots of ways that it can get in. So, so it was interesting you talking about the pipeline and like the, the further integration of like machines and software, because, you know, when, when I think of malware, one of the first examples that comes to mind is in the early 2000s when the U.S. used a um, used a piece of malware loaded onto USB devices that were then connected to the Iranian like nuclear centrifuges, and they caused all the centrifuges to spin so fast that they tore themselves apart. <laughs> no, <laughs> so, like, that's that's awesome, and, right? and like yeah, no, it's great, and, and it's um, and maybe like to some extent that's how. I tend to think about cyber warfare as being like yeah. state actors who yes. are who are participating, and to some extent, I, I'm certainly not an expert, but like I was reading that um, that what's different about ransomware is that ransomware is more likely to be a private actor than a state actor because mm. the state actor typically has a uh, a goal in mind, either um, this type of active destruction of something like mm -hmm. like your example. Um, or monitoring, a, a state agent is yep. much more likely to want to be subtle to access the system and to just hang out there recording information, gathering intelligence, mm 
Mm. Um, this profit motive, this idea of I'm going to release malicious software that encrypts your data so that you don't have access to it and then charge you money so that I can make a profit mm. to give you the decryption key yeah. is, um, in, in a sense, it's business. It's, or it is, I and mean, more and more so. It's criminal business, but it's business. It is. Well, I think that's an important, I mean, like it's an important preface to the word business in this case, right? I mean, it is a type of illegal activity that is harmful to, to people and, and is probably difficult to justify mm. um, ethically. Although dark side really does try and justify themselves ethically. Apparently, yeah which is fascinating. Um, so, so what is the traditional ransomware? The traditional ransomware, like you said, is a type of malicious software that gains access to a system. It locks down that system by encrypting the files. And then the traditional exhortation component of ransomware is that it asks the victim to pay a ransom, a sum of money in order to receive the decryption tool. And then the decryption tool will once again allow that uh, victim to gain access to their system. But over time, ransomware has continued to develop and evolve, and now, now it takes on different forms. And so I think there's, there's two things that I wanted to mention. Um, the first is the, what's called double exhortation in, in ransomware attacks. And mm -hmm. so traditionally, the threat or the, the, the kind of the bite of the ransomware attack was that you lose access to your systems. Yeah. Increasingly, in recognition of this, as well as just due to the increase of uh, technolo technological innovation and sophistication of companies, companies are backing up their systems. Mm -hmm. So the idea is you take down my primary network, but I have a backup. I can restore access to my data systems. I can continue to operate as a company. And in response, what ransomware attackers started to do is add an extra threat on top of their ransomware. It's not just that you can't access your system, but if you don't pay us, We'll take all this data we've encrypted, we'll decrypt it and post it publicly. Mm -hmm. Now the threat is, okay, what's my, what's my reputational damage if this yeah. information is made public? What is the uh, privacy concerns or IT I could lose? Anything mm -hmm. like that as our um, intellectual IP, intellectual property, anything like that that you could lose as a result of, of yeah. this information being made public. Um, or even made public that you got hacked. Like that's a well, huge that, part is yeah. just exposing your cyber vulnerabilities. And the majority of ransomware attacks that get paid never become public because mm -hmm. part of ransomware agents having a profit motive is that they need to have a reputation that they'll follow through on, on what they say they'll do, Yeah, which is that if you pay the ransom, I'll give you the decryption key so you can gain access to your files. I won't release the files publicly and I won't tell anyone about it. So you won't have any loss to your reputation. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it fascinatingly like a business that like the, the business, ransomware yeah. agent wants to treat it transactionally. Yeah. If you pay for me to do this decrypting, you know, ignoring <laughs> the fact that I encrypted it to start with, <laughs> then we're done and, and we can get on with our lives and I can go attack someone else, but, but you're off the hook. Mm-hmm. Um, in theory, of course, there's no guarantees that that's the way it's going to work out in practice. And that's one of the, the tricky considerations a, a victim of, of a ransomware attack needs to think through. Yeah. Yeah. I think 
that's I think that's really important in a lot of ways, especially as you differentiate it from like a, a malware attack from a state actor, is how straightforward the motivations are and how how resolvable the situation is. Like the the actor is incentivized, the the attacker, I guess, is incentivized to one, ask you for an amount of money that you are incentivized to pay. Right. So like ask you for like not more than it would cost you to rebuild your infrastructure or recover your data. Um, they're incentivized to make tools to decrypt it that work and work, as you mentioned earlier, on your timeline. <laughs> um and to be in some ways like stand up about it. Like there are examples of, you know, IT as they're working through these tools, troubleshooting resolutions with the attackers. So like if if the decryption tool only works on like one or two operating systems and you need to work it on more, like mm -hmm. you go and you work with the uh, work with the hackers until you can get it decrypted. So like it's funny in a way that it's almost like a software service. <laughs> once the money is paid it's like they're acting as a software service totally and we're to the point where dark side has a customer service team mm. if you pay their ransom and you know for example their decryption key is working too slowly they'll work with you they'll get their engineers on the line to help <laughs> you figure out why the decryption's not working and you know i don't know what this this means but like their actual language that they've published is we guarantee to provide decryptors after payment and mm. support to make those decryptions I mean, that's, that's it's wild yeah that's crazy and and the crazy thing about dark side so i'm glad you brought them up so so dark side is the organization that uh as far as we can tell launched the attack on the colonial pipeline but the crazy thing about dark side is that they describe themselves as a new product in the ransomware space because they're not just a criminal organization they are a software as a service provider or ransomware as a service provider, which is a literal new business model in, in the criminal underworld. Absolutely. So the general idea is if I'm one ransomware organization, I have limited reach. I know of limited vulnerabilities. Hmm. Um, I also probably expose myself to more risk if I'm trying to pull off all these attacks at once. Yeah. Instead, what if I package my product as a, as a service and I sell it and I get paid royalties when other people perform successful attacks with my product. <laughs> and, and, and that's what this attack was. It was Darkside had a client who said, we want to use your ransomware product. And they purchased it and they performed this attack on Colonial Pipeline. And, and you know, presumably now Darkside is going to receive a, a royalty of, I don't know, I've read the, the royalty payments are between five and 30% and they vary based on uh, what the volume or what the cost of the ransom you know, is. It's naturally, it's a tiered pricing structure as you might <laughs> find for any software as a service platform. <laughs> and, and, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, like what's, what's, what's really like, this is, this is, um, this is really common in software is that what makes software so powerful is you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you want to do something. You mm -hmm. can build on top of other people's solutions. And so with something like ransomware software, um, there's a lot of legitimate technology that the product is based on. I mean, encryption technology that's widely available now. Mm -hmm. So the, the developers go out and they use some open source libraries that have fairly sophisticated encryption. And that's how they get to, you know, the technology to do the encryption that they're trying to do as part of their product. Mm -hmm. And they package that with all sorts of other, you know, open source or widely available software to make this malicious 
product, the, the ransomware. Um, and then somebody else comes along and they say, well, we don't want to have to do all that again. So we're just going to purchase this from you and, and go out and actually try and execute the attack. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's wild, but, but I think like what's so interesting, um, so in, this is Darkside's actual language. When they, when they first came to market, which was evidently in August of 2020, so not that long ago. I mean, what was that, like nine months ago or, or roughly? Yeah. Um, they, they said, it, uh, based on our principles, we will not attack the following targets. Medicine, hospitals or hospices, education, schools, universities, nonprofit organizations, or government sector. We only attack companies that can pay the requested amount. We do not want to kill your business. Before any attack, we carefully analyze your accountancy and determine how much you can pay based on your net income. You can ask all your questions in the chat before paying and our support will answer them. I am just blown away. They've got a mission statement. They've got. <laughs> they do, and and they say we we provide the following guarantees for our targets. We guarantee decryption of one test file, so we guarantee to show you we can decrypt what we, we can, encrypted. Oh my gosh. We guarantee to provide decryptors after payment as well as support in case of problems, and we do. We guarantee deletion of all uploaded data from our CDNs, content delivery networks, after payment. Mm. But however, if you refuse to pay three bullet points. We will publish all your data and store it on our CDNs for at least six months. We will send notification of your leak to the media and your partners and customers, and we will never provide you with the decryptor. <laughs> Last two sentences, we take our reputation very seriously. So if paid, all guarantees will be fulfilled. If you don't want to pay, you will add to the list of published companies on our blog and become an example for others. That's and that, this, that was the press release that Darkside came out with in August. Uh, obviously, this is a screen capture of it. They posted this on the dark web. Mm -hmm. um, but but this was this is their own language to describe what they do, yeah. the business they run. I mean, so much of this is about portraying themselves as a as a business. You can trust us. Here are the terms of the transaction. Um, not only that, but we have corporate social responsibility. I mean, based on our principles, Seriously. we will not attack these different types of targets. Yeah. And I, they're very selective I, over who like buys and use their software too. They only, they only license it to very specific people, specifically not English speakers. <laughs> yeah. Isn't, I, I, I think I saw that on a, somewhere else where it was, where they actually say that they are trying to avoid licensing their software to English speakers and they try mm. and avoid attacking other Russian speaking companies yeah. or Russian based organizations, um, which is fascinating, which I think it, it probably speaks into like uh, in that uh, uh, earlier, you're mentioning the Krebs uh, testimony to Congress mm -hmm. or, or speech to Congress and, and somewhere in there, um, he said something along the same lines, like what makes uh, one of the things that's led to the, the rise in ransomware attacks is that there are these safe havens, these countries mm -hmm. that uh, I think his language was safe havens that don't mind if a little crime happens on their turf, as long as it brings home some revenue. Um, and that's what you're protecting by saying, we're not going to attack other companies based in this country. We're only going to target, you know, I think that from Russia's perspective, we're only going to target companies in the United States. I mean, that's, that's, that's a no brainer. Win -win. Yeah. No kidding. Um, although, although this is, this is, uh, uh, this is, this is interesting. 
Dark Side released a sort of apology after mm. this attack. I'm not I'm not sure if you saw this. I, I didn't I, see that. No. And you can uh, read into it as you will. It's there. They released a statement. It's brief. They said, um, "We are apolitical. We do not participate in geopolitics. Our goal is to make money and not creating problems for society." From today, we introduce moderation and check each company that our partners want to encrypt to avoid social consequences in the future. Hmm. That's, I'm like, that is so funny. That is hilarious. I'm blown away by this, this company. Yeah. Do you think they buy it themselves or do you think it's just sort of like, <laughs> well, I mean, in a sense, like they have a huge incentive. It's almost like their trust incentive. They, it, by being like a quote unquote stand up, you know, company by being transparent about what they do in some ways that minimizes the incentive to go after them. Like, like if you can say, we don't think this company is a national security threat, all of a sudden you take the United States, like department of Homeland security off the board as like a major pursuer of you. So like whether I don't, yeah, I'm not sure if they, they buy it or not, but it seems like their incentives are pretty aligned to stick with it. I mean, it's almost like normal corporate social responsibility. Whether you buy it or not, having a policy and sticking to it really can help. <laughs> I, I, I guess so. I mean, maybe they gain some sort of additional, do they gain additional trust with future victims if they, I mean, I, I, I would think actions speak louder than words in this type mm, of situation. Sure. Um, I, I would imagine they lose credibility when you know Bloomberg is reporting that their decryption tool is is faulty and slower <laughs> than the than the uh, victim's own backups. I mean that, well, that's gotta, not good. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, they gotta like they gotta step it up. They gotta do another attack that goes really really smoothly. <laughs> well, to, I mean, I I'm saying if I got attacked next, next, I'd be I'd be asking for a discount on the ransom <laughs> for sure. I'm, like, I'm not gonna pay top tier dollars for B rate ransom pro ransom software. I, yeah. yeah, but that's the thing though. Like these one thing to emphasize here is that you know we joke about these attacks, but they are becoming more and more common. And the fact that this is being packaged as a product and, and sold it only speaks to that. So, you know, partially this may be because of um, you know, changes in the technology space, things like open source encryption software and things that make it easier and and more scalable to develop these products. It also may be due to, you know, more cyber vulnerabilities as more people are working remotely, like, and also just the fact that um, in general, like the back door into a lot of these companies is through something like phishing is like a pretty efficient way to get access. It's definitely the most common attack, attack vector. Yeah. It, people are the weakest part of almost any companies. Security. security yeah it, it's it's and, and which makes sense the most common type of access that you can get yeah like um, i mean if you think about it like i think about it from like a state perspective because to me the incredible uh like some of the incredible weaknesses in our like cyber like national cybersecurity, like are very worrying to me but i think about like the u.s government employs 2.8 million people like a lot of those people use computers a lot of those people use computers and have access to sensitive material. Like, and all it takes is one or a couple of them to click on a random link in an email and the back door is open, you know? Absolutely. And, and 
ultimately there is there's no way to stop it people are going to yeah. be your weakest link they'll continue to be so there are certain things that companies can do to reduce the risk of ransomware attacks um so for example um requiring multi-factor authentication as the mm -hmm. default across everything yeah so multi-factor authentication means that it's not enough just to have a username and a password you also have to get a code or a verification from some separate physical device the person has to have uh, with them attached to the hardware um, or attached to separate hardware in order to access the system. Um, that's a lot more secure because then just because someone steals a password, they don't get to go in. Mm. Uh, monitoring people's access levels to your systems yeah, actively, following the least access principle. You should always have access to the least amount of information you you possibly need to do your I am, job. I am like actively working against that in every in everything I touch. <laughs> like <laughs> I just want to be able to do everything myself and have access to every all the data, everything. I'm terrible about that. Um, yeah, in encrypting your data so that even if mm -hmm. hackers get access to it, you don't have the same type of risk involved. Mm -hmm. I think about this a lot. There's a lot of information that I work with um, in my job as a developer that I probably never need to decrypt mm -hmm. because I'm just creating the software that's transforming it or transferring it. Gotcha. It can, it can be handled programmatically in a way that um, it remains it. encrypted or yeah. for a, a, as much as possible. Yeah. Um, and that the data that gets un encrypted doesn't persist. So it's not saved anywhere. Mm, yeah. it's, it Maybe it gets decrypted as part of the software operating and then re-encrypted before it's persisted or stored anywhere long-term. Mm. Um, backing up your systems is a big one. Companies should always test and have frequent backups and um logging access so that you can keep track of what people are doing you can mm -hmm. run machine learning on log log access to figure out if there's unusual patterns of, of access that you might not notice ahead of time um that that oh patching security risks in old oh, software yeah. there's a lot of known security risks that never get patched and that mm -hmm. creates an attack vector i mean that's that's something companies really need to focus on and you can have automated software that scans your code base to look for things that have known mm -hmm. vulnerabilities that haven't been patched um, and flag that. So having those types of policies in place. Um, now that said, that said, I think like here's the reality is that if you do all these things, you're going to be a lot more uh, secure. You're going to be a lot yeah. less likely to, to fall victim to a ransomware attack. But one, you'll still be somewhat vulnerable. Um, and two, a lot of these companies aren't equipped with this level of sophistication where exactly. they can just do that. I, yeah. It's it costs a lot of money to run a, a company this way, particularly if you're a legacy company where mm. um, you weren't built with a contemporary tech infrastructure. Yeah. Um, it, and, and, and then, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I came across this online as like one of the best defense mechanisms companies have is just to be slightly more secure than other companies in their industry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like the, it's the, uh, it's the, uh, outrunning a bear principle just faster <laughs> exactly. than the other campers <laughs> interesting which is depressing but probably speaks yeah. to the level of sophistication that might be or lack of sophistication mm -hmm. that um some of these companies i mean these companies they're not like i mean the thing is like even though we made the case earlier that technology and software has become an integral part of something like a pipeline mm -hmm. i don't think most people would say yeah i think colonial is a tech company yeah, I mean, it, it, sure. They're not. Um, yeah. I don't know what their tech stack looks like, but <laughs> I, I think it'd be a safe gamble to say they're not. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I I, I doubt they're that sophisticated. I mean, they probably have the some Google level of sophistication, but I, it seems unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, but that's the and thing. in fact, it's more concerning if they are, because if they are the Google <laughs> of so transporting and they still fell victim, then... Yeah, fair enough. But that's the thing, honestly. Like, the average ransomware attack is not a two or a five or a $10 million haul. It's a $300,000 haul, which is like solidly small business size, small to medium size business that like may seem mixed value in investing a bunch of money in, um, you know, cybersecurity protocols in hiring external firms to like redo their tech, tech stack in order to be more secure and things like that. Like, yeah, I feel like the legacy companies and small companies are just incredibly fertile ground here. The people that are are uh, going to hope that they're slightly faster than the other campers. Yeah, I, I think so as as well, and um, I think it's scary too. I mean, like I, I I genuinely think we'll continue to see the frequency of ransomware attacks yeah. increase. Um, I mean, this has made me reflect on myself as an individual. How secure am I? Ransomware yeah. attacks can be targeted at individuals as well sure. as companies. Um, yeah, that's I, a big I, that's a big not, worry I have as yeah. like this becomes more of a product. You know, as mm. it becomes more of a product, it becomes more scalable and easier to distribute. And all of a sudden, like, if it, say say you get a de decryption tool that works every time and needs almost no support, all of a sudden you can lo load that on. You know thousands of people with very little overhead and it becomes really efficient for you to like collect small amounts of money. Totally. I came across this one type of uh, phishing attack mm. recently or read about it that I hadn't thought of before, which is um, companies that malicious companies, ransomware uh, attackers that purchase ads on legitimate websites. Mm. The ads look legitimate. Oh my god! But clicking on the ad is actually exposing you to, to malware. That's just wish.com. I feel like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's actually, there's like, if you look it up, um, there's like these websites you would recognize that have fallen victim to this in yeah. the past. Uh, a, lot, cause a lot of websites are reliant on ad revenue. So there's a lot of advertisements mm. online. And uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just another attack vector that can be exposed. Um, yeah. Another one I came like, across. Oh, go ahead. Think about like, as you go to, you know, buy something online, you're redirected to a payment platform, the payment platform that looks a lot like PayPal gets mm. your like login information to PayPal. All of a sudden they've got a backdoor access to your bank account. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it doesn't take a genius as I'm not one to think about like how you might implement something like this. Absolutely. I, I was thinking also, um, about the the sometimes the lack of separation between personal and professional hardware mm. or devices yeah so i know a lot of people that perform their jobs on their personal computers mm -hmm. um and th this kind of goes back to ways companies can be vulnerable but if you can target a phishing attack in an individual's personal email mm. and then put malware onto their computer wait until they connect to their company's vpn and then use mm -hmm. that as your backdoor into into a company's network um, that's super common, especially at smaller companies yeah. to see this kind of this crossover where people use their personal devices, both for work and in their personal lives. Mm. Um, and it's crazy. I mean, like there's, there's this massive asymmetry at the heart of cybersecurity, which is yeah. that if you're on the security side, 
you have to be successful 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. And if you're on the attack side, you only have to get through once. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that, like, I, I think that, 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 that asymmetry at the heart of cybersecurity is what makes the future scary, is mm -hmm. that attackers will continue to find new creative ways to exploit software, some of which is already, like, out of date and um, would be expensive to modernize. Yep. And they don't have to win all the time. They, yep. they don't even have to win, you know, 10% of the time. They just have to win 0.1% of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And to the point you made earlier, people are the easiest part of this. We're, we're dumb. <laughs> there are so many ways to exploit social engineering to take advantage of people as the backdoor into these systems. Okay, so there's one last thing that I want to talk about, right, which is the, the role of cryptocurrencies <laughs> in ransomware attacks. Yeah. Um, and in fact, this came up in um, Krebs' testimony to, or speech to Congress. I don't know what, what type of you know interaction with Congress, but... Mm. He said that uh, one of the factors that's thrown, I mean, this, here's his language, uh, factor that's thrown fuel on the already smoldering heap, the spread of cryptocurrencies that enable the transfer of funds largely outside the eyes of financial regulators. Mm -hmm. um, and his perspective was that this doesn't mean all cryptocurrency is bad. This doesn't mean that there's, he even said, I think in his speech that uh, cryptocurrency has kind of risen to the size that you can't shut it off because of this risk. Yeah. Um, but it's a big part of the fueling of ransomware attacks because if uh, if you go to your bank and you say, I want to wire 200 grand to this bank account in Russia, <laughs> your bank's going to flag that. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And there isn't regulation or, or tracking around cryptocurrencies yeah. in the same way. Um, I was this, The size and prevalence makes receiving money in cryptocurrency low risk as well like just mm -hmm. the liquidity of it as an asset means that you know you're not going to get stuck getting two thousand dollars or two thousand two million dollars in ransomware that then halves in value because i mean these are actual good ways of exchanging currency at this point absolutely um i was reading one blog by a software developer who said that uh you know, anybody who knows, you know, whether this is true or not, anybody who knows software developers knows that by and large, we're bad at our jobs. And mm. there's no way that victory in uh, against ransomware attacks long-term or against cyber attacks more broadly will ever come from developers being faster and smarter than the criminals. <laughs> it, it needs to be um, some type of societal regulation that makes mm. it more difficult. And one of the ways to do that would be to enable some sort of tracking around cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Um, but at what cost? I mean, that, that under you know undermines one of the fundamental features. Values. I think a lot of people would say, you know, part of what makes cryptocurrency cryptocurrency is that they are decoupled from governments in a way mm -hmm. that traditional currencies are not. Yeah. You know, the strength of the U.S. dollar is intimately tied to the strength of the U.S. government, and the strength of Bitcoin isn't. And mm -hmm. when you start to regulate, track currencies, entwine existing structures of power um, with these these emerging emerging in some sense emerging hedges to, to these existing structures of power mm -hmm. like people view Bitcoin as something that you turn to when you when you don't trust the existing system or as an alternative to it mm -hmm. um, you start to undermine that fundamental feature of these currencies by yeah. by regulating them and as soon as yeah and as soon as you enable the tracking of something like Bitcoin, it becomes a more trackable currency than literally any other currency. Like as soon as mm. you know someone's wallet ID with Bitcoin, 
you can literally see every transaction that they've ever had. And so like, not only would it undermine like the value from a monetary perspective, it would all of a sudden catapult it to the most trackable, like possible form of exchange, which would then probably make it collapse because who wants that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to weigh in on the, the cost versus benefit analysis. I, I, sure. I, um, but, 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 it, but I think it's an interesting example of one of the costs of different alternative currencies or cryptocurrencies is that they, they can be leveraged for something like ransom attacks in a way that other currencies cannot as easily. So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Asshat of the Week. I have no idea how this is going to go without Nathan to, uh, to add energy to this segment, um, but here it goes. So our Asshat this week is, uh, once again, Mr. Tucker Carlson. Um, so this time he's veered... Uh, widely into the crazy zone um <laughs> so so this week um before anthony fauci was going to uh, testify before congress um tower carlson did a segment on his show about the origins of the coronavirus specifically talking about the uh the original like speculation that has gained some momentum in the medical community that it might have been part of a lab in uh uh, in Wuhan, China, that might have been released. Um, still so much, so far from any of this being confirmed. But of course, Mr. Carlson, with his uh, loose connection to reality and uh, loose interest in facts themselves, um, he talked about the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the fact that the National Institute of Health provides some funding for this and, quote, the deadly experiments going on there. Presumably, I guess he was referring to virology, which is what they study. Um, and then he and then he went on to say experiments that clearly went so wrong. And eventually, he round around to his point. He said, "Quote: This wouldn't have happened if Tony Fauci didn't allow it to happen. That is clear. It's an amazing story. It's a shocking story." In a functional country, there would be a criminal investigation into Tony Fauci's role in the COVID pandemic that has killed millions and halted our country, changing it forever. Yes, you heard it right. Tucker Carlson is not only con like, you know, progressing conspiracy theories about COVID-19 starting in a lab in Wuhan, China, but he is attempting to lay the blame for the COVID pandemic at Anthony Fauci's feet. If that's not ass hattery, I do not know what is. So congratulations for the ass that keeps on hatting, Taco Carlson, for once again being our ass hat of the week. Okay, so for our third segment this evening, um, we will be having my wife on the show, Brianna Adikusuma. Um, this is her inaugural appearance on the show um and yeah she is here because she is a journalist not a, in addition to being a smart person um on all these topics 
Uh, and so we're going to be talking today a little bit about um, the current media environment, I should say the current attitude towards news media. And then we're going to talk about what it's like to actually work in news media, how it works. And we're going to break down some of the common complaints that people have about the news media, um, which we think that they have because they really don't understand anything about that world or that process. So, Bree, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's really weird to be on here after listening to you record uh, <laughs> episode after episode. We live in a one-bedroom apartment, so I hear one side of the podcast every week. <laughs> As hat of the week. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but excited to be here. Um, I guess a little bit about me. I've been a reporter for nearly five years at this point. Um, tomorrow's actually my last day as a reporter, um, uh, as I'll be uh, moving on to another venture. But um, I've really enjoyed being a journalist. I, I've reported on various things, including government, business, and education. And government has by far uh, been my favorite. But uh, I've really enjoyed working as a journalist and uh, excited to talk about this topic tonight. Yeah. But it's no secret that being a journalist is a tough gig. Not only is it, you know, long hours, you, you see like all kinds of movies and TV shows about how hard journalists work. Yes, you don't go into it for the money or the fun of it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but more and more people are attacking the substance of it too, which is why people do it. You know, people get into it not for the money or the fun. They get into it because the fourth estate is critical to the functioning of our world. Um, like enabling a third party to go in, gather information, condense it into something that's digestible by your average person, and then share that on, on these platforms is just an absolutely critical function and one that I think we take for granted in the U.S. all the time. And it's no secret also that over the past few years, the news media has come under attack is not too strong a word to use. Um, so under the Trump administration, I should say during the Trump administration, both sides of the political aisle have been exceedingly critical of the media, mm -hmm. as I know you've experienced. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think that's it is important to acknowledge that it is both sides, uh, both political parties, yeah. um, that you're seeing this criticism from, often for the same reasons, which is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and what's really curious um, seems to be that, like, so, so some of these criticisms are reasonable. Like, some of the things that people are, are upset about are, are reasonable. But the thing about journalism is, is how high the standards are for the information you put out, for the ethics that you approach. And so, like, in this conversation, we're really not talking about fake news. <laughs> <laughs> we're not talking about Breitbart conspiracy sites. We're talking about traditional hard journalism mm -hmm. where people take their job seriously. Right. Absolutely. Um, but even that has come under increasing attack. So, so, you know, during the Capitol riots, largely instigated by years of Trump's and the Trump administration's rhetoric, um, literally Trump has called the press the enemy of the people, which is 
as we've talked about on the show, a classic line from from someone with from a fascistic perspective, someone who who wants to shut out the ability for the people to get at the truth in 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 their political environment. Like one of the first things that a dictator or a fascist does is shut down the news media and and demonize them. And so he's literally called them the enemy of the people. During the Capitol riots in January, uh, reporters were battered. They were punched in the face. Equipment smashed. Carved into the doors of the Capitol building was the phrase, murder the media. Um, and, uh, and in addition to that, we've had increasing rates of, of media actually being arrested. Um, so during like the Black Lives Matter protests, um, we were seeing not like attacks both from protesters uh, and also police. So we were seeing um, multiple examples of of reporters being arrested. So in Minneapolis, uh, for example, um, police shot a photojournalist, Lynn Zaterado, in the face with a foam rubber bullet. They broke through her protective goggles and left her um, partially blind in her left eye. Um, in Los Angeles, a police officer shoved a photojournalist, Barbara Davidson, to the ground, causing her to hit her head on a fire hydrant. In New York City, city police repeatedly hit Tyler um, Blint Welsh, on the, uh, who works for the Wall Street Journal. They hit him in the face, pushed him to the ground, even though he was wearing visible press credentials administered by the NYPD. Um, and the thing is, these are not one-off cases. So... As of September 1st, 2020, the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker confirmed 238 press freedom violations in 2020. Um, and three quarters of this were documented during Black Lives Matter protests. And, and compare that, so nine months of 2020 with 238 press freedom violations, compared to all of 2019, there were 152. All of 2018, there were 132. All of 2017, there were 144. So... To set the stage for this conversation um, is, is a truly borne out evidentiary basis for the hostility towards news media in our current environment, mm -hmm. which is, I know, something you've experienced personally. Yes, but I, I think it's important to note I, I have worked in local news um, and while I've covered Black Lives Matter protests, um, they're not nearly to the scale that they have been in other cities that we've seen that other lo local journalists from those cities have had to deal with. Um, and, um, you know, national reporters who have to go out and, and fly to different cities and, um, you know, have to deal with uh, or had to deal with the violence of the Capitol riots. Yeah. For our audience, I'm curious for you to share about, like, how newsrooms actually work so like how, first of all how that how do how do reporters even find out about the stories that they're they're supposed to be writing and and, and uh, reporting on yes i love that you asked this question because this is something that i have had to deal with my whole entire career where you know someone hears about something from social media and the first question is why didn't I see the media reporting this? Um, oftentimes we did report it, you just didn't see it. Uh, so I think that there's there's several aspects of this. Um, first of all, uh, you know, each reporter has a beat. 
So um, you could be general assignment, which means you might not have a beat, but you report on anything. But if you have a beat, you focus on that topic. And, um, you know, with government, I, you know, go to government meetings and, and cover legislation and, and such. But if there's something going on in the community um, that kind of needs a checks and balance approach, um, oftentimes I don't hear about that issue unless someone comes to me and tells me about it. Mm. So I mean, you're um, not out there just walking the streets, <laughs> ear to the ground. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, people think that that's the case, but it's not. Um, so it's always surprising to me when there's this really obscure issue that's going on in the community um, that that is really the community knows about. And um, I'm not aware of because I can't possibly know of everything that's going on. Um, and uh, it's really important, especially in local journalism. We rely on people to tell us of certain issues that come up or certain problems that they're coming across. Mm. Um, so if, if people don't tell us about some issues in the community specifically. How are we going to know yeah. that the issue is there? Yes, I mean, we oftentimes live in the communities ourselves and we, we can become aware of, of uh, stories that way. But sometimes we just need people to tell us mm -hmm. about these issues. Yeah. Um, we like, can't know everything. Yeah. And we admit that. Um, so, you know, if... If you see something, say something, right? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so basically, like, if someone doesn't file a court case or bring it to, to their legislator or somehow officially document it, right. there's no way that gets into the channels that you monitor mm -hmm. to be able to make it into a story to cover. I'm thinking of, like, you know, the, uh, like the child that was berated by police, like, until in, in Montgomery County that you would cover it, until, like someone filed a court claim, right? I'll run through this example really quick. I cover Montgomery County, Maryland, which is the largest jurisdiction in the state. And there was a case of an elementary school child, uh, five years old, who left the school because he didn't want to be in school mm. at the moment. And for some reason, the, the teachers, the administrators couldn't handle the situation and so he left the school building walked down the street and so they called police officers to the scene police came to the scene um proceeded to uh not handle the situation very well um screamed in the child's face told him that he should be beaten because he didn't listen to the adults um things like that it was very a very upsetting uh police body camera footage to watch but uh in that case uh we found out about that a year later mm. through the mother who filed a lawsuit um and what was pretty shocking about the situation is that when uh, i didn't write this but my colleague did wrote the story uh when we wrote it and published it it was the first time that the county leaders the county officials the elected politicians heard about this situation yeah. uh, and uh, the, you know, the, this investigation, this internal investigation situation has lasted more than a year and it's still ongoing, but um, no one knew about the situation. Not even the school administration hmm. knew about the issue until we published it, which is just <laughs> mind blowing. <laughs> it speaks to both the challenge that you're under 
because you're literally, I mean, I'm not going to call it like a cover up, but it seems almost secretive the way it was treated. Mm -hmm. This is not, this is not the, this is not Bree's opinion. Yeah, this This is is, not my opinion. This is my observation. (laughs) Um, So like you guys, the information is opaque to you, but it also speaks to the criticality of your position. Yes. To spread awareness, not only in the community, but literally to the officials that should be holding people accountable. Yes. Um, so just an incredibly difficult position to be in, uh, having such responsibility and, and such blunt tools in some cases. Um, so the other question is like how stories end up like getting selected. So like what makes, what makes you like go track down a story? So, so say step away from one that's obvious that's like a great piece of legislation. I guess, I guess we should think specifically about the difference between um, beats and investigative stories. Because, yes. because like you think about an investigative story and there's so much more um, judgment that goes into like pursuing something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're often the ones that like, you know, blow the lid off a situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously I, I don't do investigate, investigative pieces, but um, there are, you know, story tips that we get mm-hmm. uh, that do require a little bit of digging into to make sure that what what we're hearing and what we've been told is actually what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, I've gotten anonymous letters in the mail or um, fake email addresses sending me tips Mm. um, that I need to confirm before I just go and write something up and take this person's word for it. Yeah. Uh, So you need sources on the record. Um, You need to talk to multiple people about the issue. Um, You can't just also, let's say someone uh, claim some kind of government corruption. Mm-hmm. You need to talk to the government about <laughs> that. Um, you can't just write, hey, this thing is going on and not yeah. talk to them about it and try to investigate it a little bit. Nor so, could you write like, hey, this person thinks this thing is <laughs> Yeah, going exactly, on. exactly. Which is factually true, but not the whole story. Right. So uh, we don't just take someone's word for it and run with it, yeah. you know. There was uh, a case with the Washington Post, I believe it was it was Washington Post, Post a few years ago, who uh, wrote an article about their experience looking into a uh, accusation that a woman brought forward of Harvey Weinstein uh, sexually assaulting her, mm-hmm. and through this process of interviewing her and looking into the facts that she brought forward to them, they found that she was not telling the truth mm-hmm. about the situation. So they wrote a short article kind of describing this process of interviewing her and looking into her accusation and finding out it wasn't true. So I thought that, that was a great example of, yeah. you know, the fact that we don't just roll with the ball of someone's, um, you know, what someone is bringing to us. We actually look into it to see if there is any legitimacy to a story. Mm. Yeah, that's really and and again, it speaks to the high standards required in journalism. Mm-hmm. But it also speaks to why something can spread as like a social media phenomenon and never make it onto the front page, because social media has none of those standards. So mm-hmm. you end up in a situation where people like people are commonly accepting truth from a crowdsourced source. Which is often just, you know, megaphoning one one 
perspective or, or whatever. But it but it do, it can't be verified, and so like right. less scrupulous journalistic organizations run with these stories. I think specifically of like the New York Post and the Hunter Biden laptop non scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So their social media is interesting because. Um, on one hand, it's a really great tool for journalists to figure out mm-hmm. about um, stories that are going on in the community. On the other hand, uh, people will try to act kind of like as a news source mm. um, and post information that you know is either incorrect or sometimes can be uh, have some misinformation in it. So mm-hmm. a good example is when the Atlanta spas shootings happened that were um, aimed towards Asian spas. Um, There was a a popular TV personality um, who posted about this, the shooting and was posting about how many people were who died, who were Asian versus the others. Uh, but she got the numbers wrong and got the number of people who were Asian versus non-Asian wrong. So it's just like, even though that doesn't seem like a big deal, it is misinformation that's being spread. Yeah. And in that particular case, it made it seem like there were more Asian people who died um, than actually did. And it seems like it's not a big deal, but it's it, just even small details like that can, you know, change the perspective on a story and it's why you have sources that you trust and you discount information from other sources because you know when you go to certain journalistic organizations that they are doing the legwork Mm -hmm. to verify the facts yes such that they're not going to make those mistakes or if they do they their their integrity relies on them correcting them so you'll get the right information eventually. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if there's information put out from the police department regarding a, a, trage- a tragedy, we publish that information. If they le- then later correct the information, yeah. we immediately correct it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it's like there's, there's a reason that there are professionals that do this. Like there's no consequence to a social media influencer getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. There's an important consul- con- uh, you know, consequence to a news organization getting it wrong which is why you take it so seriously. Well, I, I wouldn't say there isn't any consequence to a social media influencer getting it wrong <laughs> because they have a, usually a really far reach. Oh, no, sorry, you're right. There's no consequence to the influencer. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, that's correct, yes. Yeah. But the problem with spreading misinformation yeah, is... Yeah, that's a huge problem. Is, yes, it's a large problem, yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so on that point, so as when you become a journalist, you go through a lot of training on how to think about information as verifiable, as fact, and to reflect it as such. So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of cases like word choice. Right. (laughs) This is a big one, too. Uh, Again, on both sides of um, the issue. So this, this really hits home for me because I I see this on both sides of people that, you know, I follow on social media, Uh, my friends, my family. Um, Let's, so for example, with the Black Lives Matter protests and the death of George Floyd, um, when all of that was happening, people were very, very 
insistent that the media use the word murdered. Mm. And we can't use that word if there has been no judgment that he was murdered. Yeah. That's a huge thing. You can't a, a just... murder's a specific thing. Exactly. You can't just say someone murdered someone if that hasn't actually been found to be the case. Mm. Um, so you can say that he died. Mm-hmm. Um, could you say there's a kill... Or like there was a killing? Could you, could you say that like... No, you probably couldn't even say that before there was any finding a fact. You probably couldn't even say that Chauvin killed George Floyd. Yes, killed is, killed is a little dicey. Yeah. Um, not quite as clear-cut as, as murdered. Right. But yes, um, we, we could say, you know, he died because, mm. you know, of a lack of oxygen, so ex-officials say. Mm. But um, we can't say that it was murder. Yeah, there's no, you're not allowed to interject your judgment. Yes, and, and that is interjecting your judgment mm-hmm. when you say that someone was murdered um, before it has been determined officially that that has actually been the case. Um, and I think that, you know, people didn't really get that. Yeah, because um, you're not out there with an axe to grind. <laughs> like, you're not yeah. you're trying to remove yourself as much as possible. It's your, it's your professional responsibility to remove yourself as much as possible. Exactly. Which means that you're not a bad person <laughs> when you say... <laughs> killed instead of murdered exactly so another example of this is again the shootings at the atlanta spas mm-hmm. where you know eight people were shot and and died and six of those were asian american women um does that seem racially motivated yes it does on the surface of course it does but the problem was we as the media hadn't gone gotten the confirmation from the police, that that was the case. So we can't just say it was racially motivated if it hasn't been decided what the motivation was. Mm. But again, everyone was upset that the media wasn't saying that that was the case. Wasn't calling it a hate crime. Yes. And I know that, you know, law enforcement officials later came out um, saying that it wasn't racially motivated. He was just having a bad day, which is a whole nother thing. But the media did report that that was said, Mm. but they also emphasized that it was six Asian American women who died amongst eight people and it was all Asian spas. So it was kind of like a, okay, here are the facts of the situation. You decide. Which personally I appreciate, like it is hard enough to make sense of the world without having to constantly counterbalance, constantly adjust what you're interpreting to account for someone else's, judgment Mm -hmm. like personally the facts plus my judgment are good enough for me (laughs) (laughs) right yeah and if you noticed in the days following uh, and even the weeks following that incident uh, the media did cover Asian American violence across Mm. the country sure I mean yeah so yeah and it was one of those things that I think that's actually a great case of like oh why weren't they covering this (laughs) they were Mm-hmm. Like people, people were shining spotlights on the increase in violence against Asian Americans. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't shared as much, right? And also didn't get picked up as much by other, like you know, across the media spectrum, right? Before this kind of high-profile shooting happened, 
Right. And a lot of people said, you know, the, the media isn't covering Asian American violence. Well, if you noticed, uh, specific, specifically in the San Francisco area, which, mm. uh, which has a high Asian American population, mm. um, the violence against Asian Americans reported there was first reported by local news outlets, which yeah. I think is a really important point. Um, oftentimes, local media will pick up on these stories that you see in the national media first. And that's how the national media learns of these stories. Mm -hmm. um, so after San Francisco media outlets reported on the violence happening there, that's when national media outlets started reporting on it. So again, that's another point going back to how we find out about stories. A lot of times, national media rely on local media outlets mm -hmm. to help them find those stories. So yes, it might take a few days for the national media to catch on into a story like that, but we do. Yeah. And also, like, it's it seems like media, all like news media, for better or for worse, also feeds off of the competitive environment with news media. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, these are businesses in a competitive industry. And mm -hmm. so, like, if someone is reporting on Asian American violence, violence against Asian Americans, and that seems to be a growing topic other sources are also going to start reporting. I mean, I've seen right. that. I've seen that, you know, you go on online and you see basically the same headline four times. CNN, mm -hmm. Washington Post, New York Times, and it's like the same exact story, same right. structure, same story, same sources because like ultimately they're all trying to compete for it. And so you get a little bit of this echoing effect mm -hmm. just because of like the snowball effect of, of that these stories have within the media ecosystem as like an isolated bubble. Right, right. And kind of a side note to this is kind of going back to social media. News on social media mm. travels so much faster mm. than a reporter can go out, get sources, <laughs> talk to sources. Which is also fast and loose. You know? Yes, yes, we do it as fast as we can. And it's kind of surprisingly fast how, you know, we can, how fast we can put a story together. But the time that it takes for a reporter to put together a well-reported well-written story on such a heavy topic takes a lot longer than a social media post that goes viral in seconds. Mm. So that's another point. If, if there's something happening, breaking news, and you don't see it immediately yeah. <laughs> from the media, don't worry, we're on it. <laughs> it's just that social media go, moves so much faster. Yeah. I think that, and I think that's like the last point that I, I definitely want us to talk about today is like the literal limitations of human beings. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when it comes to being able to do this work. Like, you, you know, in the movie Spotlight, you're portrayed as working 24 <laughs> hours a day, but you're not. <laughs> we're not. And we're not, you know, sitting by a police scanner just waiting for the next I thing mean, to happen. I mean, some of you I mean, are. some of, we, some yeah. of us are, yes. Um, I did that in my first job. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, um, we, we aren't working 24-7, though oftentimes a lot of us, it, may, it does feel that way. So, mm. you know, I have alerts on my phone from social media alerts and email alerts mm. to make sure that I'm not missing anything that's happening, even if it's 1230 at night mm. or, you know, six in the morning or, or whenever. I'm not alone in that. Many journalists live and breathe journalism. And, you know, we would get up 
at three o'clock in the morning if something tragic happened or big breaking news happened. Um, but we are human. We need to sleep. Mm-hmm. We need to take a rest. We take vacation. Um, we we won't catch everything. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, important to know. And also to know that we're humans too. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of times, uh, similar to cyberbullying, people dehumanize journalists mm-hmm. and don't think of the fact that they're actually talking to someone when they send us an email mm-hmm. that is like, go to hell, I hope you die. Like, you know, horrible, horrible things that I've been sent, that my colleagues have been sent, um, just attacks on us. Uh, it's just, it's insane the things that people say and that they don't think about the words behind them and that they're saying them to someone who has feelings. Yeah. Um, and it does affect us mentally. We do read every single negative comment that is posted on our stories. Um, you know, people who send us emails all the time and say, you're a horrible reporter. I don't even know why you're in this industry. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you write like a 12 year old, <laughs> not you, <though>. not, <laughs> not me specifically, <laughs> but, um, you know, these are things that people have said. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, even when my friends, post on social media criticizing journalists Mm. uh even you know i'll always say something because it it bothers me as a journalist um to see what i feel is unfair criticism um and oftentimes the response is oh well i don't mean you Mm. i just mean everybody else or i mean the national media um that's not the point we're all the same we do the same job um an insult to one of us is really an insult to all of us. Um, so it's definitely a thankless job. One, I think one of the more thankless jobs out there, but definitely one of the most essential. Uh, because imagine a world where there was no checks and balances, no trusted sources on what is going on in the government, in the schools, um, in business. It's it's really essential for people to know what's going on and for for there to be a third party who's looking at everything objectively. And so thank you so much for uh, tuning in, even though Nathan is missing, even though our um, format was so unconventional. I hope you liked hearing from a few different people uh, co-hosting segments on this week's podcast. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum. You'll hear from us again next week. Mm